So years ago, I was at a leadership conference, and if you don't uh, know me very well or don't follow me on social media, I am kind of a leadership junkie. I love uh, listening to podcasts and entrepreneur stuff and going to conferences and uh, reading different leadership books. And I remember years ago, I was starting out in leadership and sitting at this conference, and I was listening to John Maxwell talk. And he has this famous line, he's got lots of famous lines, but he, he sat up there and he said that everything in our world, everything in our lives rises and falls on leadership. And I sat there and I thought, man, yeah, it makes so much sense. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Because if you have had a great job, like your favorite company that you worked for, it's probably because they had great leaders. They had a great culture. If you've been part of a church that you just look back on and you just love that season, you thought, man, that was an amazing church. Like that had everything I hoped for. It was great. It's because they probably had great leaders and a great culture. The flip side of that coin is also true. If you've had an awful job, like a job that you just hated, and a job that you told people, go to college so you don't have to have this job, it's probably because you had an awful leader as a boss and it was a terrible culture. In the same way, if you've gone to a church and you thought, man, this is a terrible church. Like it's so unhealthy, everybody is, is gossiping, it's so bad, it's probably because there was poor leadership. Because everything in our world rises and falls on Leadership, it, we feel the impact of leadership. You feel it, if you're a parent, you feel the impact uh, of leadership at your kids' schools and, and the board of the school and, and, and what decisions they're making. At your company, you feel the impact of, of the leaders and the decision that they make. Same way in our country. We feel the impact of decisions that leaders make because everything rises and falls on leadership. But if everything rises and falls on leadership, and if the goal is to try to find a, a great company to work for or to be part of a church that has a good leadership culture, like, how, how do you know? Like, is there like a list of questions you can ask somebody? Like, how do you know when you sit down in a job interview, is this gonna be a good place to work? Is this gonna be a boss that I like? Is this gonna be someone who's gonna just run me into the ground so that they can make as much money as possible and then just leave me on the side of the road? Like, how do you know if it's healthy. I think about a church, for example. How do you know if a church is healthy? How do you know if a leadership culture is healthy at that church? Is it because there's a certain number of people? Is it because there's more people one year than there was the year before? Is it baptisms? Is it money? Is it lights? Is it events? Is it, I really like it? Like, how do you know if it's healthy? How do you know if it's actually mature. Because if everything rises and falls on leadership, which I believe is true, then the health of the church and the maturity of the church is directly connected to the leaders of the church. Now, here's what some of you are thinking. So glad I came today because I'm not a leader. I don't have to listen to any of this. This doesn't apply to me at all. I don't lead anything here, Josh. So, you know, you tell everybody who's leading what to do so fast? Because here's the thing. In your life, you are a leader to somebody. In your life, someone looks to you for leadership. I remember one of the first papers I had to write in seminary. I got a master's degree in organizational leadership. And one of the first papers I had to write was to define leadership. And so I had to interview different leaders and ask them, you know, how would you define leadership? And everyone had their definition. But really, at the end of the day, leadership is simply influence. That's what it is. 
The best leaders in the world, the worst leaders in the world, just influence people. So in your life, there's somebody that you influence. There's somebody that looks to you when they make decisions. There's somebody that wants to get input from you. There's somebody that respects you as well. If you're not a leader at our church, this passage today matters a great deal because if we don't get leadership right at our church, we will almost get nothing else right, okay? Because there is a connection between what the leaders do and what the church does. And in the context of this series, as we're looking at being an irresistible church, as we're looking and walking through 1 Timothy of what does it mean to be irresistible, one of the reasons that churches in our culture are resistible is leadership. It's one of the reasons that people walk away from church. It's one of the reasons that people get hurt by churches because we get leadership wrong. And here's why. Because we look for things that aren't as important. We look for skills. We look for charisma. We look for somebody that's got business acumen. We look for somebody who is really good on a stage. We look for somebody really young. We look for somebody really old. And all those things are well and good, but they're not actually what the Bible says leadership is. And here's what's important, and you know this is true, as we're gonna see in this passage today, is that character always shines through and wins out. Character always shines through and wins out. At the end of the day, and the end of every single relationship, at some point, character shines through. You find out who people are at some point. You find out what their character is. And after laying out the roles of men and women in church that we looked at last week, and if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go check that out because it really builds into this coming week. After talking about that, how we honor each other, Paul lays out what I think are virtues for leaders, and I'll share in a moment why it's not just leaders, okay? But if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down because this is where we're headed today. A church is only as healthy and mature as its leaders. A church is only as healthy and mature as its leaders. Okay? I'll quote John Maxwell again. He's one of my favorite authors. He has this law of leadership that he calls the law of the lid. And you've seen this play out. It's that he says, if you as a leader in your culture or anything in your life are like a seven or an eight, you will never have anybody under you that will exceed that. Okay? So for a church, if, if the leadership culture of the church is unhealthy, that will eventually trickle into the church. If you don't believe me, just think about the family you grew up in. If your parents' marriage was healthy, that trickled down into your life. If your parents' marriage was unhealthy, that trickled down into your life. You felt it in some way. And a church that has an unhealthy leadership culture will struggle to be a healthy church. A church that has spiritually immature leaders will struggle to help people get to spiritual maturity. Because eventually, the, the behavior and the character and the maturity of the leaders trickles down to the entire church. Like here's some examples. If a church has leaders who don't trust each other, okay? If, if the leaders working together don't trust each other, they don't talk to each other, eventually, everybody around the church will start to become really suspicious. If the leaders gossip uh, about other people in the church, or if they share through prayer requests, hey, let me just, you know, I don't want to gossip, but if you could be praying for so-and-so, it's bad. If that's what the leaders do, eventually, that's what everybody does. If the leaders in the church, if their marriage doesn't matter, eventually, the marriages in the church will begin to reflect 
the marriages of the leaders. Because whatever matters to the leaders of the church will eventually matter to the church. And it's, it's really simple, this is why. Because leaders multiply themselves. They just multiply themselves. You become like the people you hang out with. You become like the bosses and mentors that you have. And sometimes that multiplication, and if you're a parent, you know this is true, okay? Sometimes that multiplication happens and you are completely unaware of it. Like, have you ever had your kids say something? You're like, where'd you learn that word? Probably hanging out with the grandparents. That's where they learned that word. That's probably what happened. But eventually, we multiply ourselves. When we, when we vet a le- an elder, one of my favorite questions to ask them is this. I'll say, I'll, I'll lead up to it and I'll say, hey, eventually you're gonna multiply yourself into our church. You're gonna spend time with people. You're gonna be in groups. You're gonna be in classes, you're on teams. You're gonna multiply yourself. So eventually, we're gonna get 10 of you. We're gonna get 10 of your generosity. We're gonna get 10 of your prayer life. We're gonna get 10 of your evangelistic fervor. We're gonna get 10 of your spiritual and emotional maturity. So tell me why that's gonna be a great thing for our church. Why do we want 10 more of you? And then they're like, oh, let me tell you how amazing I am. And they'll talk about all these, all these things. And I'm like, that's awesome. Now tell me why we don't want 10 more of you. Because you don't just multiply the good stuff. You know that as a parent. You don't just multiply the good stuff. Now, Paul, what he does in 1 Timothy is that he's writing to Timothy in this, in this culture that is incredibly pluralistic in the city of Ephesus like our culture is. It's a church that, that false teaching has come into, and so Paul's whole letter is about how Timothy builds a church and builds a culture to protect the church from false teaching so that the church can be built up and grow into maturity. And he spends almost an entire chapter on leadership. What we're gonna look at next week is we're gonna look at how we respond to leadership, which is an incredibly important thing. Do we have a good attitude towards leaders? Do we follow leaders? Do we get angry at leaders? Do we make it difficult on leaders? How divisive are we? And so Paul spends so much time talking about leadership that we have to step back and go, obviously this mattered. <laughs> you know, and as Jenna read through it, it, you hear all these different words, and you're like, oh man, there's, it's just this long list, it's just this bullet points. But obviously it matters for Paul to spend so much time saying these are the virtues and characteristics of leaders. And this is what he says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Now, in some translations, that word overseer is translated as elder or presbytery or bishop, depending on the different translations. But basically what Paul is talking about are the leaders of the church. And before getting into what leaders are, what leaders do, Paul lays out who he's talking to. He starts off by saying, if anyone aspires to be an overseer. Now, the word, if anyone, is a gender-neutral word. And so what Paul is talking about, I think he's talking about men and women in this context. And if he were just talking to men, he would say, I'm just talking to men. He would have used a masculine word there instead of a gender-neutral one for anyone. And this is part of the debate that we talked about last week. Why does Paul say in verse two that he must be the husband of one wife if he's talking to men and women? See, in this setting, 
as we talked about last week, the culture within the first century was one that was very focused on hierarchy. It was a masculine culture, which shaped how things were communicated to the culture. As you read through scripture, when it is talking to an entire group, it will often, almost always, speak directly to men. Here's an example. In the same way, as you read through Exodus 20 and you see the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, no one in history has ever thought, well, because it says don't covet your neighbor's wife, women can covet. No one's ever thought that. Now, some of you are like, man, I could have been coveting this whole time. Instead, when we read that, we go, well, he's talking to everybody. In the same way, when Paul writes these letters, he's talking to everybody. And so for our church, we've believed for decades, this isn't a new thing. I had someone ask me this past week, hey, is this new, this, like, what we think about men and women? No, this, for decades, this is what our church has believed. And Paul says, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, and what I think he's saying is that to be a leader is to feel called to it. Now, often in churches, when it comes to leadership, it, it will, some churches will nominate candidates. Some churches will put out the call. I, I know of one church that just calls people and says, hey, will you serve this year? Like, we're just trying to find anybody who will serve this year. Like, we just need an elder. Will you be an elder? I mean, you're old. You've been around a while. You seem mature. You have business acumen. Will you, could you do it? I remember talking to one pastor. He said, you know, Josh, it's so hard to get people to be leaders. He said, no one wants to do it. And, and he described what they did. And I said, well, yeah, like, no one wants to do it. There's not a high calling to it. And Paul says the first step to leadership is to feel called to it, is to desire it. And that call can be a desire to lead. That call can be the voice of God, a sense that there's something next for you, that there's something that God's wired you to do. That call can come through a conversation when someone says to you, hey, I see leadership in you. Like, I see something in you, and they call it out of you. So that call isn't just something that, like, you go off on your own and, and, and have to have, but you have to feel called to leadership. Why? Because he tells us later that you're going to be tested. You're going to be tested. You're going to be tested spiritually. You're going to be tested emotionally, mentally, physically, relationally. Leadership will cost you in life. And sometimes, as a leader, and, and you know this as a Christian leader in the business world, sometimes the calling that God has placed on your life is the only reason you are still in the leadership game. It's the only reason that you hold on to integrity, that you make those decisions, that you keep putting one foot in front of the other because you know that God called you. You know that God has placed you in that place because leadership is hard. It's rewarding and difficult and amazing all at the same time. I remember years ago, an older pastor, we were talking, and I said, hey, tell me, what is pastoring like? And he goes, pastoring is like parenting. And he's right. Leadership is like parenting. There's amazing moments, and there's moments you wish you could get back, and there's moments that you think, there's no way you're my kid, you know, and there's all these moments in between that. And that's what leadership is like. It's this amazing, beautiful thing. And we know as well from the book of James that leaders in the church, Christian leaders, are judged harsher. They have a higher standard of judgment. Now, who are the overseers? 
Like we said last week, when we read a word like overseer, when we hear a word like leader, we immediately put our lens onto it. And in the first century, churches oftentimes met in homes. They met underground in secret, as we see in the book of Hebrews. But when Paul says overseer, the simplest way to think about this is he's talking about leaders who are responsible for taking care of the community, for giving guidance, for giving wisdom and direction and care. Okay? When he says overseer, they're the people who take responsibility for the community, who take responsibility not to say, we will care for every single person in the community, but we will make sure that everybody gets cared for. Okay? They take responsibility for what happens, for what's said, for the decisions, for the directions. Now again, like I said, before you sit back and go, well, you know what? I don't wanna be an elder. I don't wanna be a small group leader. I don't really like people, so I'm not gonna, this, is a, this sermon's not for me. Here's, the, here's why I think this sermon's for everybody. One, every verse in the Bible is for everybody. So you, you don't get to a chapter ever and go, well, this obviously isn't for me for some reason. So there's that. The second reason is, Paul lays out what it means, I think, to just be a mature follower of Jesus in these verses. Like there's not another list in the New Testament that Paul has, okay, so here's the leaders and then here's everybody else. So like he doesn't say, okay, like the leaders don't get drunk, but everybody else, like you can just drink as much as you want. He doesn't say leaders don't be greedy or after fame, but everybody else, like you can get as many Instagram followers as you want. There's not two separate lists. So when we think about what does it mean to be a mature, healthy follower of Jesus, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are great places to start. But as well, the responsibility then of the community is to say, okay, are the leaders of our church, do they fit these virtues? Is this who we place in leadership? Do we value character that we care about these things? And so Paul talks, he walks through, and we're gonna focus mostly on verses two to seven because they're very similar lists. But this is what he says in verse two. He says, this is what a healthy, mature follower of Jesus looks like. This is what a leader looks like, okay? An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy, he must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation of the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. And so in this, in this list and in the next one for deacons, Paul really has four categories of characteristics and virtues that he looks to. Four categories of what it means to be a healthy, mature leader, what it means to be a healthy, mature follower of Jesus. And those categories are to be above reproach with character, to manage their family, to be mature in their faith, and to have a good reputation with outsiders. Okay, so the first one, to be above reproach with character. Above reproach means, it doesn't mean that somebody is sinless or blameless or never does anything wrong, but what it means is that their character can withstand an assault, okay? It means that their character is one that is above questioning. That if somebody were to say about a leader, hey, have you heard this? Being above reproach means that someone would go, ah, that doesn't sound like them. That's what being above reproach is. And we see this in their faithfulness to their spouse, 
which when Paul says that they are to be the husband of one wife, that, that phrase literally translated is faithful to one spouse. It means that they are faithful to their spouse, that they're self-controlled, they're sensible, they're not a drunk, which means they're not being controlled by other substances or other things. They aren't a bully. They don't pick fights. They don't create division. They aren't after fame and fortune. I mean, just think, for example, of leaders in our culture. If you're a bully, if you pick fights, if you create division, you get more clicks. Some of the people that we follow, some of the people that we're big fans of, what are they doing? They're bullying. They're creating division. Now, it's easy for us to go, yeah, but like, this isn't for them. But we do have to step back to say, okay, are we following people? Are we being influenced by people that don't fit this list? Do we put the standard of what scripture has? Because again, whoever influences us will eventually, we'll start influencing other people with that. And it's easy in our culture to be a bully. It's easy to create division. It's easy to just stir the pot. Just be like, oh, well, you know, I just... Just like a good argument. Well, that's not in the Bible. That's actually bad. He says they're not bullies. And to be above reproach then means we have things in place in our lives to keep our integrity. He says they don't gossip. They're not double-tongued. They say the same thing in every situation so their story isn't changing. There isn't, you know, this story with this person and then this story with that person. Now you'll notice as you read through this list, it actually has a ton of similarities to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. So Paul says this is what leaders look like. Now the second area is to manage their family. Now, this doesn't mean that they have to have a family, but what I do think is that Paul is talking about how the family, that, that family unit and those close relationships become the proving ground for leadership. And this has to do with how have you reconciled your family of origin? What things in your family of origin have you been able to thank God for, but then also that you've been able to confront and go, okay, that, that's a thing that I'm not gonna keep passing down the sins of the father. Have you dealt with those things? This doesn't mean that a leader in the church has to have children. Some people will read that to say that they have to. We know that Paul and Jesus were single. So obviously Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, didn't write this and be like, well, I guess I'm not a leader. <laughs> but as well, the family and close proximity of community is where character is proven. I mean, think, if somebody is hospitable, how do you know if they're hospitable without going into their house? You don't. I mean, they can be kind and like welcoming out in public, but then when you go into their house and you're like, this is really weird. Like you've been in houses where you're like, this feels strange. There's a room that we don't go into and sit in and like, you know, and like, but then you've been in houses where you're like, hey, just put your feet up. Like we're, Take whatever you want, go to the fridge. Like, you only find that in people's houses. And again, because this is important, because in our culture, our homes are our sanctuaries. We've built them to keep people out. 
It's very easy to live life and never get to know your neighbor's name. Depending on where you live, if you have enough trees around you, you don't even see your neighbors. But to have people, and, and I think in being an elder, there needs to be a context where you're in community, where you're leading community and, and people are around you to be able to say, yes, this person has these characteristics or no, and that only happens in community. It only happens in community. I'll give you an example. Years ago, um, so we had our, our three biological kids. They were under six years old. We were leading a small group in our house. And this was one of the biggest small groups we had. We had, we had 19 kids and 17 adults in this small group. Okay? And so, um, and so I'm getting our, our kids trying to get ready for bed. And, um, and there, were a few, there were a few couples in our group that didn't have kids. And so I said to one of our kids who will remain nameless, I said, hey, it's time to get ready for bed. And they looked, they folded their arms. They looked right at me and they go, that is not a good idea. <laughs> now, what this child didn't know was that right behind them were about four or five people in our small group. And at this point, they're all watching to see what I'm gonna do. You know, they're, they're like, okay, well, what's, what's Josh gonna do now? And so I got down on their, on, you know, eye to eye, and I said, hey, it, it is really bedtime. Now, here's the thing. Within community, you find out really quickly where people have gaps in their life. If you show up at your small group leader's house, you're gonna know whether or not they had a fight right before small group started. You feel it. I mean, you walk in and you're like, obviously they were fighting while they were cleaning up. <laughs> like, you feel that. But also then, it's this reality of being able to say, this, this is real life. And yeah, like, you know what? Like, this is as clean as we got the house. You're welcome. <laughs> and yes, like, there's tension. And yes, there's difficulties. And yes, there's joys. And, but that's what community is meant to be. And I've seen churches where the elders of the church weren't in any kind of community, weren't in any kind of small group, didn't lead a small group. And so for our church, you have, you have to be in one if you wanna be an elder. You gotta be a part of a community. You can't be out on your own. It, it, for us, it, it's just that important. Because that way the elders not only know what's going on in the life of the church and connected with people, but also then people know who the elders are and they're connected to them and they're seeing their life, okay? So the first thing an elder is to be is to be above reproach, manage their family, which leads right into the next one where he says to be mature in their faith. Paul says they can't be a recent convert, they can't be new to the faith, a new follower of Jesus. Because remember, this church was experiencing all kinds of rifts and false teachings, and if you're new to the faith, you don't know what a false teaching is yet. You're not sure what's right or wrong, and so you need that maturity. And as well, that maturity has walked valleys. Okay? Let me say this, there is a difference. This is really important. There is a difference between being a mature follower of Jesus and being someone who has followed Jesus for decades. They're not always the same thing, okay? There, there is a difference from being a mature follower of Jesus and just somebody who has followed Jesus for decades. Just because you have followed Jesus for decades, you have gone to church for decades, does not mean that you are mature in your faith. Some of us along the way just stopped growing. And part of why we stopped growing is because we got out of community, Part of why we stopped growing is because we stopped being discipled by somebody, we stopped discipling somebody else. 
And too often, our definition of maturity is not biblical. Like we often think a mature person is someone who has lots of Bible knowledge, could score 100% on a Bible test. That's not actually in the Bible. Like Jesus at one point said, yeah, well, yeah, even, even the demons know who I am. So there's more to it. And maturity then is weathering the storms and valleys of life and faith. And maturity is not always the strongest leader. It's not always the loudest person. Maturity comes from the testing of your faith. This is why he talks about in, it later in the, the list for deacons that their faith will be tested. And notice that Paul lists so many different virtues and qualifications and he lists one skill, just one skill, the ability to teach, the ability to teach. Now we think when we look for leaders, we look for all kinds of skills, right? And then we're like, and they're a good person, so that's like a win. But Paul says, no, 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 focus on character and then the ability to teach, why? Well, in this context, remember, they're having false teachers. So the ability to teach is the ability to, to combat the false teaching. The ability to teach is not just standing on a stage and doing what I'm doing right now. You teach people one-on-one, -on -one, right? If you've taught your, your teenager to drive, it, that's a one-on-one. -on -one. It's a very contentious one-on-one -on -one sometimes, <laughs> right? But that's what, the ability to teach is simply the ability to explain the faith. It's the simplest way. So when someone goes, well, I just don't know that I could be a leader. Like, I don't know enough. Can you explain the faith? Can you explain your faith? Can you explain the hope that you have? If you can, then that's the ability to teach. It doesn't mean you know all the right answers. It doesn't mean you even know all of the answers. Because listen, in this church, there, there are people sitting here and you have sat here for years and you don't lead anything and, and it's time for you to get off of that bench and start leading something. Like you have maturity and it's time for you to realize that it's time for you to step out and be called out on that. Like I've met countless people that I, I sit in small groups and I'm like, there's like four small group leaders in this group. There's like eight people in here who could be discipling people. It's time to step up into that. So that, because you're never going to experience all the fullness that God has for you until you step into all that God has for you. And that's part of it, okay? Because again, this is so important. A church is only as healthy and mature as its leaders. And the last thing he says, they have a good reputation with outsiders. They have a good reputation with outsiders. Paul says that a leader should be well thought of by people outside of the faith. They should be well thought of. Now, if you watch a lot of Christian leaders on social media, they're not well thought of outside of the faith. And it's not because they're being persecuted, it's just because they're jerks. Like, that, that's the problem. And so when, when we vet a leader, when we vet an elder, do you know what we do? We, we have a reference form for somebody that doesn't go to church, that doesn't follow Jesus. And we'll call them and say, hey, tell me about so-and-so. I didn't even know they went to church. Well, that might be a problem. Are they well thought of? If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're a follower of Jesus, you go to work, the people at your work should think well of you. They should think well of you. That doesn't mean that you are soft on your convictions or what you believe. You can hold to your convictions and what you believe and still be well thought of. How? 
well, self-control, sensible, not a bully, not a drunkard, not greedy. You do all these things. Notice he gets to the very end. If you do, it's almost like Paul saying, hey, if you do these things, you'll probably be thought well of. Because people will be like, that's a really great person. And that's a question for us as followers of Jesus. Say, am I, am I thought well of by my neighbors? Am I thought well of by my unchurched friends at work or at the coffee shop? If you go to the same place on Sunday afternoon to eat, do the people see you when you come in? Are they excited that you're there because they think well of you? Or do they think, oh, the church people are here. (laughs) Most people, you talk to people in the restaurant industry, they really hate Sunday lunchtime. It's the church people. They're the worst tippers. They're the meanest people. It's like they left with feeling all this guilt and the shame and they're just like, let's take it out on the restaurant people. But are you thought well of? See, this is not an easy thing to do. It is not easy to hold your convictions and be thought well of. Why? Because there's something in us that wants to be a bully and fight. There's something in us that wants to argue, which is why Paul started in, in, in chapter two in the middle. He says, don't raise up holy hands openly, not fists in anger and argument. This is all connected. He's saying, This is why we do things like the trunk or treat and the Christmas carol. It's why we do grief share. It's why we do mops because we want people in our community to think well of us. We want them to think well of us. They would say, man, that was was fun. You know, that was a good time. I got to meet somebody. I had this conversation. And then we've started to see people come to our church who came to the the touch a truck. These are all just, it's, it's not just to do a fun thing just to do a fun thing because we want our church to be thought well of. Because in our culture, in our day and age, the church is not thought well of. Just in general in America, the church is not thought well of. And we want our church to be thought well of. Now you might wonder, okay, so how does this apply to all of us? How do we bring this all together? Well, one, as you look through 1 Timothy chapter three, I think there is kind of like, a self-reflection, confessional time that we can have personally to say, is there anything in there that just does not fit my life? Because all of us have those. There, there are lists in those virtues that are super easy for me to do. And there are other ones that I'm like, that's really hard and I wish Paul didn't say that one. <laughs> and as you think about it, sensible, greedy, self-controlled, bully, argumentative, excessive drinker, As you think about these different ones, here's how I want us to head into communion together. Which of those do you go, I wish that wasn't on the list? And take a moment to examine in your heart, why did that ping in you? Is there something in you that you have to say, God, this is not true of me? Because what we're told as we come to the table each week, as we take the bread and we take the cup, is that we're reminding ourselves of the brokenness that we walked in and the grace that we've received. But we're told as well that each time we come to communion that we are to examine our hearts. That we are to examine who we are and and what and our hangups and the things we struggle with. And so I wanna take a moment just right where you're at. Whatever that is for you. And maybe maybe it's just something else that you carried in today that you just need to say, God, I... I need to confess this to you. I need to confess my my lack of trust in you in this family situation or my lack of trust in you in this 
financial situation or this health thing. So just take a moment right where you are. Just say, God, this is, this is the brokenness that I carry in. This is the place that I need to be reminded of your grace for me. Jesus, we stand before you knowing that you have paid the penalty for all of the sin and brokenness in our hearts and in our lives, for all the things that we carry, for all the hurt that we bring along. You have forgiven those things and, and, and you remember them no more. And so I pray that we would be people, that we would be a church that would desire to live the fruit of the Spirit, to live out the virtues that Paul lays out. That we would desire maturity that goes through testing. That we would desire to be thought well of. That we would desire to have integrity that is above reproach. That, our, that the next generation would see in us as adults adults who are striving with humility and brokenness to look more like Christ. Because as we think about, especially the next generation, they are watching us, they are watching our behaviors. They are watching how we treat each other and they are asking, is this really what I think Jesus is like? And so there is so much at stake. This, this, this list is not just a list about leaders. There is so much at stake for our church to, to live this out. And so we come to you humbly under our King Jesus at communion now saying we need the power of the Spirit to do these things. We need the power of the Spirit to live these things, to desire these things. And so I pray that we would confess those places where we don't desire those things. Some of us need to say, God, we, we actually don't want to be thought well of or we actually do want to be a bully and we need to confess those things to you. And I thank you that every week we can come to the table, we can come to the elements and remind ourselves of the grace and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus that our sins have been paid for and been made right and redeemed. In your name, amen.